Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 115, A Coup, A Failure, and the Beginning of a New Russia. Well, we're down to the last three podcasts on the ruler's side of the history of Russia. And from there, as I've told you in previous podcasts, I'm going to be moving on to different subjects. One of which, because of the recent bombings in uh, Boston, I want to talk about the Chechens and their relationship with Russia. And I'll see if I can do that before the last episode of The Rulers, because I think it's a very timely topic and something that I want to have clarification on who the Chechens are and why there's such animosity between them and Russia. Anyways, let's get on to this one. Last time, we saw the rise of Boris Yeltsin from the ashes of shame. We also recounted the beginning of the disintegration of the power of the Communist Party. Now, we're in July of 1991, when Yeltsin issued Decree Number 14, which banned the Communist Party from using government property of the RSFSR. Discussions were now being made between the leaders of many of the republics of the USSR to create a new confederation of states, known as the CIS, which Gorbachev was dead set against. Still, the Soviet Union under Mikhail Sergeyevich had teeth and could pose a threat to the fervor of independence. Despite all the rhetoric, though, Yeltsin had to be careful. Any such possibility was to be shattered during the almost comical attempted coup by Soviet hardliners starting on August 19th and ending ignominiously on August 21st. Yeltsin was to have a series of sterling moments in response to the coup, moments that are etched in world history. Since I already covered the coup in episode 109 in the Gorbachev series, I'm going to now cover how Yeltsin behaved during this tumultuous time. The coup attempt of 1991 was one of bumbling and lack of coordination and was truly indicative of the type of communists left over from the legacy of Lenin and Stalin. Their misguided, utopianistic vision, created through fear, torture, and murder, had left a spineless crew of apparatchiks, unable to pull off the overthrow of a powerless man. It was an apropos ending to a country with an implausible start, a humanitarian disaster of the middle period, deserving of an embarrassing and ignoble end. Timothy Colton de defines the coup's view of Yeltsin best, when he said, quote, The fumbling plotters had puzzled at length about Gorbachev, but gave little thought to Yeltsin or to his Russian administration. Earlier in the year, a KGB colonel had approached a colleague of Yeltsin, Pavel Voschanov, to put a meeting together between himself and Boris in order to, quote, save the country. Yeltsin's reply was, Let's see what they're going to do but we will not have any contact with this hoodlum. That hoodlum was one Vladimir Putin. Now back to the coup. Kryachkov of the KGB vastly underestimated Yeltsin's disdain for the Soviet system. He wrongly believed that Boris was a believer in authoritarian system and that his antagonism was not toward the Communist Party, but towards Mikhail Gorbachev. He was obviously grossly mistaken. Kryachkov said, quote, We will reach an agreement with Yeltsin. We will fix this problem without taking any measures beforehand. 
Rumors were flying wildly about things that the KGB were plotting. They were going to plot to assassinate Yeltsin, or at least capture him and hold him until he agreed to their plans. Gorbachev was told that Boris had already been grabbed, but was later told that there was actually a plan to take him. Now the plot was already unraveling. Kryachkov tried to negotiate with Yeltsin to save the coup, but, quote, Yeltsin refuses to cooperate. I spoke with him by telephone, but it was useless. Boris headed to the Russian White House with a full contingent of bodyguards. There, he and the parliament's co-chair, Ruslan Kashultikov, demanded Gorbachev's release. At the same time, Yeltsin proclaimed that he had taken control of the military and the police in Russia. The next scene, which I quote from Colton's biography on Yeltsin, seemingly came from a script from a Hollywood movie. I have to tell you, if you're interested in Yeltsin, this is a fabulous book. Quote, A light drizzle was falling. A 12-wheeled, olive-green T-72 tank, number 110, from the Taman Motorized Rifle Division, built at the Ural Wagon Works in Sverdlovsk, a blast, had just rumbled toward the bottom of the stairs. Yeltsin walked slowly down the steps, grabbed a small Russian flag from a bystander, and stood in front of the machine, intending, he said, to keep it and the three or four additional tanks behind it from coming any closer. For a second, he looked down the barrel of its cannon, confident they would not run over a president. Only when the 45 tons of metal screeched to a halt did it occur to him to heave himself onto the hull, something in his training as a tank operator at UPI and his service as part overseer of industry in Sverdlovsk let him know how to do. Once on it, Yeltsin reached into the hatch to shake hands with the driver and gunner and improvised again. Perched on hardware that symbolized Soviet power and what had been done in its name in Budapest in 1956, in Prague in 1968, and in Kabul in 1979, he pumped his right fist twice. He then read out his appeal to the citizenry, a copy of which he had clutched in his hand as he walked out of the building unamplified to a knot of television cameras and a sparse audience that grew from about 50 when he began to more than 150 at the end. As passerbys and shoppers from nearby stores came to have a look, Nikolai Vorontsov, the Soviet environment minister, Alexander Korsakov, Gennady Birbulis, and members of his entourage scampered up the side of the tank as he spoke. The world was watching on CNN, mesmerized by what they saw, but what Soviet TV would not. By this time, a few hundred of Yeltsin's closest supporters had barricaded themselves at the White House, with gas masks and rifles by their side. Seventy-five thousand people gathered with them, either as supporters or as onlookers, gawking at a sight not seen since 1917. Calling on the military to come to his side, 
Yeltsin said, soldiers, officers and generals, the clouds of terror and dictatorship are gathering over the whole country. They must not be allowed to bring eternal night. To the people gathered, he boomed into a microphone. You can build a throne out of bayonets, but can you sit on it for long? I am convinced there is not and will not be any return to the past. Russia will be free. The backing of two key military figures solidified Yeltsin's position. Generals Yevgeny Shapshenikov of the Air Force and Pavel Grachev of the Airborne Troops. The evening of the 20th saw the unfortunate deaths of three young men whose funeral Yeltsin went to to console the families of the men. The same funeral Gorbachev was to attend, but only in body, but not in spirit. Boris was absolutely puzzled that the KGB would not storm the White House. Kryachkov just could not pull the trigger, as he felt that the ensuing death toll would be far too great. Stalin or Lenin would have had no such hesitation. But this was the Communist Party they had created, and left as their legacy a spineless, vacillating group of men, without any convictions aside from keeping the status quo. The coup was over as the conspirators gave up and were arrested. Gorbachev returned to Moscow, but not as a hero, but as a shell of his former self. He was now truly a powerless man, head of a government descending into oblivion. On August 24, 1991, the Central Committee of the Communist Party was dissolved, followed on September 5th by the USSR Congress of People's Deputies closing down as well. Yeltsin knew his chance to knock out Gorbachev was at hand, and he took the opportunity with brutal efficiency. At a meeting of the Russian Supreme Soviet, Gorbachev was giving a speech when Yeltsin strode to the podium with television cameras rolling and shoved a transcript in front of Mikhail Sergeyevich, taken from Nikolai Vorontsov, that revealed that Gorbachev's own cabinet ministers had betrayed him. Then, in, as Gorbachev recalled it in his memoirs, as a sadistic moment, Yeltsin forced the Soviet leader to read the embarrassing document out loud, word for word. President H.W. Bush, along with his advisor, Brent Scowcroft, was watching this unfold slack-jawed. Scowcroft said, quote, Yeltsin's telling him what to do. I don't think Gorbachev understands what happened. Bush replied, I'm afraid he may have had it. For all intents and purposes, the real end of the Soviet Union was August 24, 1991, the day Gorbachev read the transcript, and not on December 25th when, it was resigned, when he resigned, as nation after nation abandoned Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernenko, and Gorbachev's version of a communist utopia. A utopia that never was. Now join me next time as we watch Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin ascend to powers the next-to-last Russian ruler 
and see it all fall apart for himself in the ensuing economic debacle. I know this has been a short uh, version of our podcast, but don't panic. I'm going to be posting up the next one, episode number 116, in just a couple days. I was thinking about doing two of them in one day, but because of the way iTunes downloads things, I was going to hold off a little bit on that and just give it a couple of days. And also, on April 30th, the third anniversary of the beginning of this podcast series, I will be doing episode number 117 on Vladimir Putin. And that will be the last one for the Russian rulers. And from there, we will move on. And hopefully, if I have the time, I'm putting on a big conference in Lake Tahoe this coming weekend, I'll be able to do a small little podcast on the relationship between Chechnya and Russia and why there's such animosity between the peoples. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit the website at www.russianrulershistory.com where I'm counting down the best and the worst Russian rulers of all time. I've just posted my selection for the third worst czar emperor of all time, and that would have been Paul I. And I gave you the reasons for that uh, for a short five-year term before he was brutally murdered. But there's some good information on why I think he was one of the worst rulers that Russia ever had. Now, if you go to the website, there you can make a donation if you wish to help to pay for the podcast, and that would be greatly appreciated. And I really want to thank all of you who already have. It really helps these uh, Russian history books can get kind of rich even when you buy them used. Uh, you can also join us on Facebook, which is a really growing community. It's the Russian Rulers History Podcast page. There are two of them. One of them, we have a lot of discussion, and you'll see that's the one, and you have to get approved. And if you're going there to try to sell something, which a few people have lately, uh, you will be uh, thrown off the board and uh, banned for good. But there we've had some fantastic discussions, especially after this last episode in Boston. Uh, there you can uh, leave a message, ask a question, or make a suggestion. But as always, das Vidanya, и спасибо большое.